The church in pictures is what we've been discussing. This is part five in that series, The Church as Bride. My heart has very much longed for this chapter of our study of the church. It is very precious to me, and I've been excited to get to this part. Uh, I do want to make a provisional statement first, and I pray that this will be taken to heart by those for whom it is intended. And that is to say, many of you here today, no doubt, bear on your hearts the scars of divorce. And perhaps those wounds are old and have mostly healed. Perhaps not. Perhaps those wounds are fresh and raw. Perhaps those wounds are old and have never healed. If we're not careful, some of what we'll talk about today might reopen old scars that you thought had mostly healed. Or perhaps, even worse, it might cause you to feel some fresh guilt over sins confessed long ago. And I need you to know that that is not the intent of this message. It's not my intent. If there are scars upon your heart from past marital failure, regardless of whether you are innocent or guilty, if God has since brought healing into your heart, this sermon is not meant to reopen old wounds from the past. And to whatever degree you are able, please don't let this message do that. Because, again, that is not the heart or the intent of it. Some here who have walked that road were probably actually the more innocent party in the marriage breakdown. And you never should have shouldered guilt in the first place because you tried to be a godly spouse. You didn't ask to be cheated on. You didn't ask to be horribly abused. You didn't ask to be abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Some of you, that's your story. And so you weren't meant to shoulder guilt in those cases. Others of you, however, probably did bear some responsibility and some guilt in the marital failure. Maybe you were bitter in your marriage. Maybe you were manipulative. Maybe you were resentful and you did everything you could to create distance and to keep distance and to drive your spouse to whatever action they took. Even so, if you've confessed and asked God for his mercy for these things and likewise have believed his word and received his grace for those things, then this sermon is not meant to conjure up fresh guilt in your heart, even for those things that maybe were partly your fault. If those sins are already forgiven, let them remain forgiven. Don't conjure up fresh guilt over them. Don't let that happen through this message. Now, that being said, in discussing the church as bride, many of us might do well to feel a little bit of guilt, godly remorse, over our selfishness in marriage. And whether human marriage or marriage is the church being wed to her bridegroom, her Savior Christ Jesus, whichever one we're talking about, God will use these passages in his words sometimes to convict us of things. That guilt is meant to serve a purpose. It's meant to cause us to be quick to contrition, to repent, to ask his forgiveness, to believe and receive it. What we're going to look at today is a reminder that God takes covenant so seriously. It is sacred to him. And yet, all too often, our hearts are unfaithful. And what we know from his word is that we have been spiritual adulterers over and over again as our affections and our desires are drawn to anything and everything in this world other than him. And yet, we have to remember this is not how God made things to be in the beginning. This was not his design or his intention. Thankfully, this is not how things will remain in the end. The marriage of God to his beautiful bride, the church, 
his good creation, his image bearers, that was lost for a time, for actually a lengthy time. Lost, we were, we were lost in shadow and darkness and fear and death, and yet what we see is that God called the church, his bride, to walk down the aisle toward him and join him in sacred covenant forever. And so let's begin here in a very famous passage of Old Testament wisdom literature. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Very interesting passage, isn't it? There's a progression here in these verses. At first, the bond and the benefit being described seems to have to do with friendship. And so for any who have longed for marriage and haven't found their way into marriage in their life, you can be encouraged that that's not entirely what this passage is about, which often it's been read in that way because of the cord of three strands. But primarily the context at first is that of friendship, close friendship. But then things progress to a level that most would consider to be a bit more intimate, lying down together at night to keep warm. Now, of course, there are friends and family who have had to do this through the centuries for survival purposes. But it's not typical, I would say, at least not in our modern cultural moment. There's a bunch of us guys that head up into the mountains each fall for a camping trip, and there's been a few times it got a lot chillier than we anticipated, and we had every bit of clothing in our packs on, and we still were freezing our buns off, and Yet, we didn't zip all of our sleeping bags together and all huddle up close to stay warm. Like, we preferred to to shiver a little bit. And yet, there are instances where friends or family have to do that very thing for survival purposes, for wellness purposes, to lie down body to body through the night for the sake of warmth. Next, there is the imagery of two withstanding one intruder an assailant who would enter a home to prey upon those within. And what the the author says here, what Solomon says, is that two in the house can do what perhaps one cannot, which is overpower the villain, overpower the one. And then to conclude this section, Solomon progresses yet again in a most interesting way where just out of the blue seemingly, he says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So we have to ask three. Up to this point, everything has been twos. What is Solomon getting at here? Why three? Well, there's something amazing that happens in cording and braiding where the strength inherent in the cord is exponentially increased when there are three strands as opposed to only one or two. And I'm not sure about the truthfulness of this, but I've read it, so I'm just going to throw it out there. I've, I've actually read that sometimes even a strand or a cord of four or five strands is not as strong as a three-stranded braid or cord. Some of you who are more experts in that scientific enterprise can either confirm or deny that. I just read it at one point. I can't remember where or when exactly. But there's no question that as you progress from one or two strands to three, that then the strain is displaced differently and the force is absorbed much more effectively in the braid or in the cord. And so what an interesting word picture Solomon is giving us here, a cord of three strands. Most readers through the years and most commentators too have taken that to mean God's involvement in the closest of human relationships, be that close friends or that of a married couple. 
God has chosen marriage in particular as a picture for the world of how he relates to his covenant people, his bride, the church. And what's wonderful about this is you don't have to be married to appreciate this and to understand it. Rather, God just gave this institution, this picture of marriage, to the whole world to speak the truth about how he has approached and related to the people he has called into covenant with himself forever. In this marriage, that of God binding himself to a special bride and people forever, what we find is it's actually sacrifice of self that causes life to blossom and flourish in the relationship rather than interest of self, which is much more common to man and to the world. That we're entering into a relationship out of self-interest. What's in it for me? What do I want? What can you do for me? And instead, Christ gives us this model of entering into this sacred covenant to sacrifice self. The marriage on earth between man and woman that would truly reflect the Father and Son and the Spirit becomes then that marriage where the man and the woman are essentially competing with one another to give themselves away in selflessness and service to the other. Much easier said than done, of course, right? But it's in the wake of that death to self that true love erupts into true life. I want to share a passage from a book here. There's a a gal, her name is Diana Lynn Severance. She's a biographer and a compiler of letters shared between famous Christian couples in centuries past. And she wrote this in the introduction of one of her books. Christian marital love is more interested in the other person than in satisfying personal needs or demanding personal rights and fulfillment. Very beautifully stated and very much in accordance with what we see scripturally. And she used that as an introduction to, in her book, she takes seven couples in in Christian history of recent centuries and They were couples who'd been separated for any number of reasons for a lengthy period of time and kept in touch through letters. This was before the internet age and the smart age and the the device age. This was when you actually had to get a piece of paper out and write a letter to the one you loved and stamp it and send it, and in a number of days you'd hope that they received it. And you wouldn't know if they'd received it until a week or two later you'd receive something back from them. Well, anyway, she chronicles the exchanging of letters between seven couples, Christian couples who were devoted to one another, One of them that I want to reference today is Thomas Jonathan Jackson and Mary Anna Jackson, his wife. You can see their pictures there. Thomas lived from 1824 to 1863. He was more famously known as Stonewall Jackson. And Anna from 1831 to 1915. And Anna actually wasn't the first love interest in Thomas's life. He had passed through valleys of great shadow and suffering and bitterness of soul before God rekindled a new love in his life through Anna. So anyway, Diana Severance writes in her book, Thomas Jackson was among the most brilliant of American soldiers. He was also a deeply committed Christian. A native of Virginia, both Jackson's father and his mother died by the time he was eight. He was brought up by aunts and uncles. In 1842, he entered West Point, where a poor boy could receive an education at government expense. Though he began at the bottom of his class, his hard work and dogged determination brought steady improvement. By the time he graduated, he was 17th in his class. And you should know there was a lot more than 17 in his class. Jackson completed his West Point training in 1846, just as the war with Mexico began. Here he saw his first military action. Here he also was challenged by Colonel Francis Taylor to examine the Christian faith. 
Jackson began reading the Bible and systematically examining various Christian denominations. After the war, he was stationed at Fort Hamilton in New York, where he trusted in Christ as Savior and Redeemer and was baptized. In 1851, he became professor of artillery tactics and natural philosophy at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. There, he attended several churches before joining the Presbyterian Church, pastored by Dr. William S. White. Jackson's Christian faith became the most absorbing part of his life. Prayer became as constant as breathing. He accompanied even trivial acts with a silent prayer. When he drank a glass of water, he would thank God for his gifts. When he posted a letter, he always asked God's blessing on the recipient. On August 4th, 1853, Jackson married Ellie Junkin, daughter of Dr. George Junkin, president of Washington College, also located in Lexington. In October of the following year, Ellie delivered a stillborn daughter, and then she herself died shortly thereafter. Jackson was devastated. Through the committed support and Christian influence of close family, he was eventually able to receive Romans 8.28 as a life verse, believing that truly God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometime after the tragic passing of his wife and daughter, he wrote in a notebook about what God was teaching him through it all. He believed that through the suffering, God was leading him to the following ends. He writes in his notebook, to eradicate from his life all earthly ambition, all resentment, and to develop humility. He wrote, if you desire to be more heavenly minded, then think more of the things of heaven. Rocket science, right? And less of the things of earth. Eventually, Thomas met and fell in love with Mary Anna Morrison of North Carolina, whom he had met the summer of 1853. During their engagement, they were separated for a time by many miles and would write to each other regularly. And so in her book, here's where she begins to chronicle and, and just to include these letters that have been preserved in history. And so I'll just read this one that he wrote to her. This is one of his letters, one of many, to his beloved Anna, dated April 25th, 1857. He writes, it is a great comfort to me to know that although I am not with you, yet you are in the hands of the one who will not permit any evil to come nigh you. What a consoling thought it is to know that we may, with perfect confidence, commit all our friends in Jesus to the care of our Heavenly Father, with an assurance that all will be well with them. He apparently hadn't received his regular letter from him, and, and though the next line you might be tempted to read is him being kind of jabbing her, in the language of the day it was actually meant affectionately, he said, I have been sorely disappointed at not hearing from you this morning, but these disappointments are all designed for our good. In my daily walks, I think much of you. I love to stroll abroad after the labors of the day are over and indulge feelings of gratitude to God for all the sources of natural beauty with which he has adorned the earth. Sometime since, my morning walks were rendered very delightful by the singing of the birds, the morning caroling of the birds and their sweet notes in the evening. Awaken in me devotional feelings of praise and thanksgiving, though very different in their nature. In the morning, all creatures except man appear to join in expressions of gratitude to God. It's a very astute observation, in it, isn't it? The uh, trees, the birds, the flowers, they all seem to just praise God by existing as they were designed to, whereas man is the one creature that rejects this and suppresses this. All animated nature appears to join in expressions of gratitude. In the evening, all is hushing into silent slumber, and this disposes the mind to meditation. And as my mind dwells on you, 
I love to give it a devotional turn by thinking of you as a gift from our Heavenly Father. How delightful it is, thus, to associate every pleasure and enjoyment with God the giver. Thus will he bless us and make us grow in grace and in the knowledge of him whom to know aright is life eternal. I, I share all that this morning as a lengthier introduction to hopefully set our hearts right in understanding what God intended this union and this institution to be as opposed to what it's become in our day. Think of what love and attraction have now devolved into and this is especially pertinent for those who are very young and yet to be married and always having a smart device in their hand. Think of now the TikTok era and the short video era and what has, what has marital affection and devotion devolved into? Animalistic, lust and base things rule the day. But entries like this show us how in the past God has called his people to know one another in sacred relationship and what the purpose of that marriage is. And what we see then here at the outset is that the purpose of marriage has always been to conform us to Christ and to ready us for eternity, not just to satisfy ourselves by getting everything we want out of the short time we have on this earth. The purpose of marriage is also to teach us what it means to belong to the Lord and he belonging to us, which makes it all the more tragic to consider the state of marriage in our day. Again, especially in the age of the smartphone, how quickly we have moved further and further from genuine love and self-sacrifice to a place of just total unrestrained animalistic urge. The covenant words, until death do us part, have very quickly become until boredom do us part or until frustration do us part. And what we find then is that the fracturing of marital covenants has more to do with one thing than any other thing, and that is human hard-heartedness and selfishness. It's a worldview that says, hey, life on earth is short. I want to have a good time. I want to feel a particular kind of way. I tried you out. You're not really doing it for me anymore, so I've been spending a lot of time perusing the online human buffet late at night on my little smart screen. I've been doing more than a fair bit of fantasizing, and I've got to say I'm pretty sold that I would be a lot happier with some new prospects. When we selfishly pursue our own happiness in these ways, it usually comes at the expense of our holiness. And very quickly, we can develop a misunderstanding there, and that is that happiness and holiness are mutually exclusive, that you can't have both. We fail to account for this fact that our brand of happiness that we're seeking to take for ourselves is not the real kind. It's a counterfeit. And it actually cuts us off from the life that is in God and in Christ and his word. And yes, it feels thrilling for a moment and liberating and joyful for a short time. But then the effects of the drug of self-worship soon wear off and leave us feeling just as empty and just as unsatisfied and just as unhappy as we've ever been, if not more so. All the while, the God who is holy, who is life, and who uniquely knows what is good, he beckons us to put him first. And if we do, he promises us that his joy, the real deal, will always be waiting on just the other side of whatever toil or frustration or season of disappointment or dissatisfaction that we, in which we find ourselves. 
And so God desires us to keep covenant because it proves that we understand the depths of love and self-sacrifice to which he has gone to love us and to remain in covenant with us. Has that been easy on him? I mean, that's kind of a philosophical question. If he's God, maybe nothing is easier or harder than the next thing. But from a human perspective, making sense of this, I think we can easily say, no, it was not easy on him. In fact, it came at great cost to himself. The greatest cost. He laid down his own life, his own glory, his perfect dwelling place in heaven. Why? To suffer, to die, to be rejected and cast away and despised, mocked and scorned and humiliated. All for what? For the glory of it all. Of what exactly? What is this? What kind of love is this? That even the deepest, darkest, most shameful intentions of the human heart cannot keep God from loving those he has determined to love. Nothing can keep him from loving those he has chosen and determined to love. He has set his affections upon his people, his bride, the church. He chose this. Not because we weren't blemished. Hey, they don't look so bad. I'll choose them. No, we all were blemished. Not because our sin wasn't quite as despicable as other people's sins. No, it was. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory to the same depth of depravity in terms of requiring the brutal execution of the Son of God. Well, why then? Did he set his affection on his people because he knew that we want him in return and all these other people don't desire him, but we want him, and he's just so pleased that there, there are some out there who are like that? No, we didn't want him. No one wanted him, not in their sin and their blindness, at least not at first. What we see is this. He set his affections upon us, his people, his bride, and brought us into covenant with himself. Why? Simply because he chose to. He wanted to. It pleased him. It glorified him. It pleased his heart. And knowing that metaphorically we would spit on the very face that wept real tears over our sin, he loved us still. Loved us to the uttermost. Hung there at the ultimate marriage altar. Can you picture the cross as that? Like the ultimate marriage altar? Hung there and said, in other words, I choose you. My bride, my people, my church. And I will love you always. I will love you forever. Though you are wretched in your sin, though what should be your white wedding garment is covered in your own filth, I will make you clean. I will cover your shame. I will forgive your iniquities, and you will be free. You'll be clean and beautiful, and you will love me from a heart made new because I loved you first, and my love is powerful enough to transform even the most sin-deformed heart on the planet. And what did God give us as a way for us to prove that we understand this and to walk in it? To prove that it means something to us, that it means everything to us, what did he give to the world? What did he give to the church? When he calls to us and says, 
Love one another as I have loved you. What is one of the primary expressions of that? It is the holy covenant of marriage. And I do not mean to say that you have to be in that covenant to appreciate and absorb what God is saying through it. This is for the whole world to see and to testify to. He calls us to follow in his steps, to behold and to experience firsthand, whether in a marriage or in a friendship or the congregation or whatever, to experience the most visceral, in the most visceral way the sting of sins committed against each other. And yet to say, as we have opportunity, just like our Savior said to us, I have seen the worst of you. I've been wounded, and yet I love you. And I will not let my heart grow bitter toward you. I won't do it. I will not allow my heart to be set against you. I am for you. I have put my affections on you. They are for you. That day at the altar, I chose you to love through the best and the worst. And what I vowed on that day, I renew today and every day. Today, again, I choose you. Tomorrow, I choose you. For the rest of my days, I choose you. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what does Paul say? This mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. It's not just a man and woman together in marriage thing. This is for the whole body. This is what God is communicating through it. This singular truth by itself can radically transform any heart, and I would say any marriage. If only both spouses' hearts are not so hardened by sin's deceitfulness as to miss what God is saying through it all. Now, here is a good place to reiterate a bit of what I said at the beginning. Sometimes certain sins kill marriages and there is no resurrecting them. Whether it's an unbelieving spouse abandoning a believing spouse or infidelity that one spouse, try as they might, just cannot seem to reconcile and work through. Or whether there is abuse of a kind that is literally stealing the physical and spiritual life out of another. Whatever the reason, there are times in which there is no going back from the breakdown of a marriage. But in virtually every other instance of marital breakdown, it is sin and selfishness that win the day. It is hard-heartedness. In so many marriages, what is seen is that there is a shocking lack of genuine gospel presence and gospel understanding. God, in his marriage to his people, the church, declares, though your sins be many, I love you and have chosen to bind myself to you in sacred covenant. And though your sins break my heart, I love you still. I will forgive your sins. I will even strike them from my memory. I won't keep a record against you. Is that not how Paul defined love in that timeless chapter of Corinthians? It keeps no record of wrongs. And then, when his bride actually beholds this, they sing this song back to him in return. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And God takes this covenant love and these covenant blessings and he says to his church, 
as I have loved you, love one another. And yet, what is our tendency? What are we prone to do? What does our flesh instead draw us to do? We're tempted to then have this mindset where we say, yeah, I mean, I'll take God's unconditional love and affection all day long, you bet. Bring it on, God. All your grace, all your forgiveness, all your mercy, I love it. But as for you, my earthly spouse, I'm not happy with you. And so I'm moving on from you. Even if not legally yet, at least in the depth of my heart, I will foster a distance. I'll punish you manipulatively, invisibly, emotionally, with my affections or lack thereof. The world's understanding of marriage is exactly this. I have the right to look out for myself and to get my own happy high however and whenever I want on my terms. And if he or she isn't doing it for me any longer, I'll find it somewhere else. I'll find it in someone else. That was never what marriage was intended to be. It was not meant to be this self-interest grab. Marriage was meant to be a microcosm of the gospel itself, a miniature version of the gospel itself a symbol of what God has done for us and how through his marriage to us, what do we have? We have security. We have future hope. We have belonging. We have joy laid up. And so his word is given to us as we back up further than where we read last time, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Gave himself up for her. Why? Why? that he might sanctify her, that is, make her more like God, make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. God has given us a picture of a bride and a groom in holy covenant to help us understand who we are as his people and how he relates to us. The church collectively, every true believer for all time in all places is his bride and he is the groom. How precious that picture is and deeply moving as it should be. We find that from the very beginning, marriage was meant to be upheld in this way as sacred and holy, a covenant for life unto death. Think of the relationship God had with Adam and Eve in the garden, the intimacy, the closeness As he talked and walked with them in the cool of the day, there was wholeness, spiritual intimacy, and yet they forsook their first love, choosing instead to to redefine what was good and pleasing to the eye and good for the soul. And yet, even on that day, God made a promise to undo the effects of this infidelity and to restore and redeem what was lost, to restore covenant with his bride, to love her faithfully despite her faithlessness. Though men and women were covered in sin, covered in shame, yet, what do you find all throughout the Old Testament? Yet God would constantly call to them, I love you in spite of it all. 
come back to me. Your first love, come back to me. What a God, what a husband, what a savior. And yet for centuries, the hearts of his people would not love him. We see this, Jeremiah 3.20, God says to his people, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. You can perceive the grief in his heart, can't you? When you hear him call out to his bride in verses like Ezekiel 16.32, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. These are piercing words, aren't they? And yet, the most amazing part of it all, God's heart for his people remained this. Joel 2.12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And yet, as God is calling us down the the aisle of life toward the marriage altar of eternity, what are we guilty of? We're supposed to be locked in gaze with him, aren't we? And isn't that one of the most beautiful parts of any wedding ceremony when the the bride and groom, their eyes meet and she begins her march toward him? And that's just one of the best parts to behold. Everybody else's eyes are watching their eyes as they're locked. And yet, what are we like spiritually with God? He's calling us down this aisle toward the altar to be wed to him forever. And what are we doing? We're glancing over our shoulders, trying to make eyes with all our lesser loves in the world, give that flirty wink or stare, trying to make eye contact with a thousand lesser things, lesser affections, idols of the heart, even while he's eagerly trying to draw our gaze to be locked in with his. We fail him so often. Our adulteries take a thousand forms. I mean, it could be very literal. It could be sexual in nature, but it also could be our materialism. It could be one of our flings that we are unfaithful to God with, our independence, our greed, our manipulative personality, our contentiousness, always looking for a fight, our jealousy, our agendas, our substances. These can all be lovers of the heart with whom we're unfaithful to our groom, our Savior. And if that's not frightening enough, which it is, it's even more perilous that we can actually take good things, noble things, and be unfaithful to God with them. I mean, do we not know this to be true? I've known this temptation to be very real in my life. That something even like a marriage or children can become such an affection of the heart that it dwarfs to insignificance the affection that we should give and feel for our Savior. We begin to live for things that we think are good and noble things, and in a way they are, and yet they're not, as they begin to take the throne of our heart. Other people can very easily be our favorite idols, keeping our affections wholly surrendered. And so we have to ask, what really keeps us going in life? If we're being totally honest on a given day, what keeps us going? In total honesty, would we have to admit sometimes it's our kids or our friends or our careers or our financial plans or our vacation plans? How often are these the things truly keeping us going through the day, getting our temporary fix of joy and meaning and purpose in this world instead of our creator who knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves? And who, this is amazing, desires 
closeness with us. Closeness. How often do these lesser loves push him out of our gaze as we're walking down the aisle of life toward the altar of eternity? How often? Are we keeping his gaze? Are we cherishing his love? Is covenant faithfulness to him what our hearts truly desire? Or in the depth of us, again, in total honesty, do we need other things and people in order to truly be happy in this world? Is he enough? Is Christ sufficient? Is he enough in this marriage of him to his people, the church? Or do we need other partners in this marriage? How great our unfaithfulness can be, and yet, here's the good news, yet our God longs to take us back again and again and again. Instead of divorcing himself from us forever, he longs to cover our shame and our sin. That we might be restored to right relationship with him. And maybe, finally, one day, this side of eternity, he might truly be enough for us. Our deepest longings fully met in him, our Savior. Brothers and sisters, he desires to wed himself to us forever. But is he enough? Is he sufficient? Here's the most amazing part of it all. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown or deny himself. Even when we're unfaithful, which we are prone to be, what, what remains his heart toward his people, toward his church? His bride. You see it here in Zechariah 1 3. Here's his heart to his people. Return to me. God, even when we're like used goods, even then. God, even when spiritually we've so cheapened ourselves by our repeated sinfulness that we've become like a harlot, that no one is even willing to pay anything to anymore to be with, yes, even then. Now, what might our response be? But surely this is too good to be true. Is it, though? Ezekiel 16, 8 and 9, God says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. Heart-wrenching, isn't it? I mean, we think this is a way bigger deal when, we, when people do it to each other than when we do it to God. It's not a bigger deal. It's a bigger deal when we do this toward God, and yet, what does his heart remain? Jeremiah 3.12. Go, proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. That's like, that's not that big a price that God requires, but it's an essential one. Our sins hung over us like a thousand scarlet letters, and yet still he beckoned us to come. Come and be joined to him at the altar of the cross, where Christ becomes the bridegroom of the church, and by his dying, makes perfect forever those who are his bride. That's amazing. This is what he does. This is who he is toward his people, his beloved. And again, Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. 
Friends, how quickly do we forget this while we're on this earth? How quickly do we forget we are not here to feel all the feels before time runs out? We are not here for that. And that's why people sometimes panic, isn't it, and make rash marriage-ending decisions? Do they truly take the gospel seriously? Is Christ truly the source of their joy? Why then? Tell me, why then is it so common for a person to be scrolling pages of online dating profiles virtually five minutes after a divorce? That happens often. What is that saying about a person? Is Christ truly the reason for your living? Do our marriages truly exist to beautify by our sacrifices of self the other? Or do our marriages exist for ourselves? No, they exist for his glory. At the risk of insulting your intelligence, I will say a third time, I'm not talking about instances of life-destroying abuse or irreconcilable unfaithfulness or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Of course God wants us to seek reconciliation when it's possible, but reconciliation is not always possible. But those exceptions aside, how often are marriages put to death at the altars of convenience and self-sacrifice or self-interest, selfish desire? How often are covenants broken over no good biblical reason, but rather a couple's just tired of each other? They're always mad at each other. They're always disappointed in each other. They're always frustrated. They're verbally and emotionally abusive. And instead of being humble and contrite and broken and repentant, they do the one thing that is certain to perpetuate their unhappiness, and that is to walk away from the best opportunity they've ever had to live out the gospel. They're desperate for a Messiah substitute, and they'll try anything or anyone except the Messiah to fill that void. But it never works. You cannot look to your spouse to be what only Jesus can be for you. It does not work. It does not satisfy. Likewise, you cannot try to be for them what only the Messiah can be for them in, in a way of trying to steal his glory in his place. Like, at the very least, I have to be the savior of this person. This is a profound mystery when we're talking about Christ in the church. How glorious then when believing couples see this and they say, our marriage does not exist for our earthly desires and plans. It exists for the glory of God and to tell the story of his covenant love and faithfulness. As we try to wrap up here, just a little personal anecdote. Um, marriage has always struck me ever since the time I was a very little boy as this amazing and beautiful thing. I remember when I was very little, I think just seven or eight years old, one of the defining moments of my life was attending the wedding of my oldest brother. And it was actually a pretty long ceremony. I think it was over an hour. But it was incredibly Christ-centered. And to me, in, in that number of years of my life thus far, I think it was the, the most perfect thing I'd ever seen, the most beautiful thing. And I actually remember riding home late at night in the back of the, the minivan or suburban or whatever it was, thinking about what I had just experienced and witnessed. And I, had tears in my eyes, even as a little boy, thinking of what God had done and what this, I couldn't put it into words back then, but it, it made such an impression on me. And I think it was then that God was beginning to plant seeds in my heart that would take most of a lifetime so far to grow into what he was cultivating them to be. Because I think I missed it at first, the whole meaning of it all, what he was doing in my heart. Because for most of my childhood and probably my adolescence and maybe even part of my young adulthood, 
I think the, I had assumed that the reason that that day so long before had made such an impression and had struck me as so beautiful and sacred, I think I assumed the reason was that falling in love must be the height of human experience and that finding the one for whom my soul longs, as Song of Solomon expressed, that that, that had to mean the woman of my dreams and that represented this kind of highest plane of human love and experience that a person could attain to, that could, that could not be surpassed by anything else on earth. It would be this unmatched bliss, this supreme ideal, this pure felicity. But it took time to realize those shoes are much too big to be filled by the union of two sinners. It took time for God to teach this, these lessons to my heart. The holy longings God was stirring in my heart were real. He was up to something, but it wasn't what I had assumed. And I do believe he is the one that put that awe and that, that admiration of the marriage covenant in my heart, but not so that I could find everything my soul longed for in a spouse, although I dearly love my wife, but so that I would understand what it meant eventually for my soul to be satisfied in him, to have everything I longed for in the Savior of the world. Not everyone needs marriage for this realization. Not everyone is called to marriage. Singleness is a high and a holy and a beautiful calling, and more people should be excited about the opportunities that that affords for ministry on this earth in the short time that we have. But for others, like myself, marriage was a perfect opportunity for the, to be proven in my heart that the gospel is real. And Jesus is enough. And what is, what is it that it's intended to be for all who are married? It's this, to point to him. He gives us the picture of marriage to the church so that we would know things that we couldn't know any other way. And again, I don't mean that in regard to just those who are married. What is he teaching us as he walks us through all these seasons? Seasons of both heartache and joy. Failure and victory. Satisfaction and letdown, selflessness and selfishness. He's teaching us what it means to commit to someone in sacred covenant, knowing them that as surely as you love them at their best, when it's so very easy, you will absolutely have the opportunity to love them at their worst when it's anything but easy. And though we fail at this, he never does. And he never, never will. So, really quickly, five takeaways from this message. Christ alone is enough for us, is kind of the, the heading of these five takeaways. He is sufficient. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. What is that saying? He's everything we need. He is sufficient. Keep looking for sufficiency in other things, lesser things, you'll be empty. Acts 4.11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He is sufficient for us. We'll continue this message next week. There's, a, there's an issue I want to talk, talk about in relation to the church's bride of the great spiritual uh, abuse of what's called the prosperity gospel, abuse on the bride of Christ. 
And that's kind of a more sombering topic, but today is a positive one to end on. Number one, he is enough for us. At least he should be. He better be. He is enough for us. Colossians 2.9. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does he say to the church? You are complete in him. You don't lack anything. He is sufficient. Number two, he will cover all our sins and shame. This is what the groom does for his bride. In case you're afraid, be comforted. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, he will cover all our sins and shame. Number three, he will never leave us or forsake us. This is not who he is. It's not what he does. He does not leave. Hebrews 13, 5, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This fourth one I kind of borrowed from something I like to tell my kids at night when we're tucking them in. Um, Every month or two or every so often, I'll, when we give them a hug in, in their beds, and I'll say this. I'll say, there will never be a day. What? Natalie, can you finish it? She's probably shy. And they say back to me that you'll stop loving me. There will never be a day that I stop loving you. There will never be a day that God stops loving us, that Jesus stops loving us as the groom. John fifteen nine. what does it say? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about that. What does that imply? How does the Father love Jesus, the Son? Perfectly, eternally. Will there ever be a day that the Father doesn't love the Son? No. And what does he say? In that same way, that's how I'm going to love you. Forever. So abide in my love. And number five, finally, he will take us to be with him forever. John 14, 3, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Oops, I kind of copied and pasted the wrong verse there, I think. If, um, and I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to be with me where I am, that where I am you may also be. I'm going to finish today with a song. Um, this is a song that I, I heard this song several years ago. I think Ike Lynn is actually the one that showed it to me. But it's this Irish folk tune. I know we're just running out of time here, so thanks for bearing with me. But um, it's this Irish song called The Fields of Athenry. You can look it up if you want. One of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard, but it's like super depressing, which I thought was just really unfortunate because it's such a pretty song. It was such a beautiful melody. And I'm like, you know, this, this needs to be more of like a minor key, haunting, sad tune, but it's a, it was a beautiful song. And I'm like, that just really bothered me. And so there was nothing better I could think of to rewrite words to than about this very topic that we're talking about today. Um, and so I, t I titled this re-lyricking re of this song, Between the Altar and the Isle, because one of my favorite parts of a wedding ceremony is the bride is coming down this aisle, the groom is up here in this place you'd call the, the altar, essentially, but they both take a step toward each other and meet in this one place in between where there's actually the giving away, where she is stepping out of this home and this life and these parents that she's been under her whole life, and, and the father's actually placing her hand in the, the hand of the groom, and he steps down away from the where he's standing to receive her. And in this one moment between the altar and the aisle, there's this place of meeting and joining where something that didn't exist before now exists. And it's, it's profound and it's amazing. So apologies to whoever the Irish people were that first wrote this. I'm sorry to desecrate the song, but I wanted to share this just to hopefully capture the heart and the spirit of this as we close. I, I kind of had wrote this hoping maybe one day one of my kids would want it at their wedding. If that happens or not, that's fine, but... I thought it would go well today with this message, so we'll close with this. 
Let your heart lean into mine My darling, we have waited Has he not made all things beautiful in time? So let his voice awaken love Let our hearts return the song let a chord of three now be entwined. Love is alive between the altar and the aisle. A tether that will never be untied. Where your heart becomes my home and you dwell within my own. Beloved, I am yours, you are mine. Awake, O oh morning light, my bride is calling for me. Tender is her voice upon the breeze, so I will rise and Hasten on to her side where I belong. For precious are her vows made unto me. Love is alive between the altar and the eye, a tether that will never be untied. Your heart becomes my home, and you dwell within my own. Beloved, I am yours, and you are mine.
Father, I pray this morning that as we ponder these things, the deep things of the gospel and how you as a groom relate to your bride, the church, that it would radically transform us in two ways. Uh, That it would change how we see ourselves in relationship to you. That instead of always feeling guilty and trying to do things to make us feel less bad and less guilty, that we would simply believe you and accept that you have set your affection upon us, sins and all, to cleanse us and make us beautiful. And Lord, may it radically transform then how we see one another. And I just especially want to pray for the, those who are young, who are in our audience this morning, who one day desire to be wed. And maybe they've been dreaming and thinking that the one thing that will be more exhilarating than any other is to find that perfect soulmate. Lord, they might make a devastating decision that might wreck their entire life. I pray that you'd use this moment to solidify in their hearts that only you can be enough. Only you, Lord, are sufficient. And if you decide to bless them with an earthly version of this heavenly reality, that it would be only after you've become the first and greatest love of their hearts, that they wouldn't be so eager to awaken love before it's the right time that they throw everything precious away. So protect their hearts, and Lord, remind us that in Christ alone, we have all that we need. We thank you. We pray it in your name. Amen.